Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that doesn't take a stance on whether atoms or bits are better than each other. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. This episode is brought to you by Disruptor-level patrons Bob Owen, Garrett Allen, Michael Warner, Nick Hurley, and Nicholas Santos. You can become a patron of the show on a one-time or a recurring basis and get rewards like an exclusive enamel pin and being thanked in this fashion. Visit newdisrupt.org support. If you're interested in the Tiny Type Museum and Time Capsule project I mentioned in this episode, my effort to create actual miniature museums with genuine historical and modern type and printing artifacts, visit tinytypemuseum.com for more information and to pre-order a museum or other rewards. I've been a bit behind with mild illness and misconnections for a few interviews, but I've got four full episodes lined up for taping in the near future, plus some shorter episodes in the What's Your Latest and Grand Invention sub-podcasts to come. Thanks for your patience, and now, on to the episode. I'm at the headquarters of Glowforge, a company that makes uh, things that turn other things into reality, I guess is the right thing. And I want to point out, I'll tell you more about Glowforge in a minute, but I want to point out that uh, this is not a, a sponsored episode. Glowforge has been a sponsor of the podcast before. Uh, Dan Shapiro, one of the founders, is a friend of mine. He's sitting to my right. And uh, and I've known about Glowforge as a thing since before it became a thing. Um, so And I own one, and I'm I'm very excited about it, but what we're here to talk about today that I'll be talking about with uh, three folks at Glowforge is about uh, facilitation, how you can, as a maker, be uh, get help from other people, get help from, from things and products and turn your ideas into uh, reality because I think there's a lot of uh, this independent creation process requires other people to help you. In the past, they were gatekeepers. Now I think they're enablers, the right kind of enabler, um, not the wrong kind. Let me introduce the three folks I have here uh, with me today, and uh, this left-right stereo separation might even work. So to my right is Dan Shapiro, who's one of the founders, he's the CEO of Glowforge. He sold his last company to Google, and you may recollect him from the episode uh, several years ago about Robot Turtles, a really successful game that teaches programming principles to young people. Uh, Dan's also a drone builder, and he authored the book Hot Seat, the startup CEO guide. Shell Megersey has worked in film. She is to Dan's uh, right, if that makes sense. She's worked in film, TV, and video games, bringing everything from giant 3D monsters to well-known cartoon characters to life. You'll have to tell us about that. And at night, you might find her designing anything from vinyl toys to couture, bedding fabric to intricate uh, wedding invitations. And finally, Nick Taylor, who is to my left, spent the last 12 years completing hundreds of projects, including custom headphones, bespoke bicycles, desktop furniture, and lighting. Uh, before joining Glowforge, Nick spent five years at Apple and ran his own company making artisanal leather goods. So everybody, thank you for being on the podcast, first of all. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having me in your offices. And uh, everybody here is a maker. That's the other thing is, is you all, before joining Glowforge, before founding Glowforge, were making things. Um, I think we should talk a little bit about the origin story because last we spoke with you, Dan, in this, <laughs> in this universe of the podcast, uh, you had just, you were very excited about a 2D laser cutter you had bought to engrave uh, high-level rewards for robot turtles. It's true. It was a giant <laughs> uh, industrial laser cutter engraver that had just been imported from a factory in China and installed in my garage. It was table-sized. And it took me, you know, days to get it working and weeks to kind of get it working well. And I remember showing you the kind of magic, if you fast-forwarded over a couple of hours of optical alignment and, and arguing with software, what happened when you pushed that button and how transformative that felt. For me as somebody who had a lot of experience working in woodworking, 
but not much else that suddenly now is able to go use this tool to go work in leather and do paper cutting and uh, work in plastics and all sorts of other things I'd never been able to do before. And we kind of geeked out and talked about how neat that was, although I, I Neither of us had any idea what was going to come of it at the time, I think. Well, I remember you talking about how terrible the software was. And I thought, gosh, you know, Dan's a software guy. Ah, nothing will ever come of that, right? Uh, but that's, I mean, I think that's one of the impetuses, right, is that you saw this thing that was incredibly transformative but totally unapproachable. There was so much difficulty at, at every stage, hardware and software, getting it to work. And so it seemed to me Glowforge was this, like, creative simplicity, right? It was how do you make this something that someone can use with literally pushing a button? Absolutely. And, you know, I've had uh, benefited from innumerable types of privilege in my career. Um, one thing that's always come to mind in the creative space is that coming from uh, a background where I have an engineering degree, where I've worked in high tech, um, where I have uh, the means to be able to go experiment, I could go buy a piece of industrial equipment and I could put it in my garage and I could learn how to use it. Uh, but not everybody has the ability to go and you know put a factory in their garage. Uh, I don't know if I told you this, but this building we're in right now, this office, is actually a century-old ice factory. Oh my gosh! Oh, that's great. And I mean, one of the things that surprised me about that was I was like, oh, a hundred years ago, you had to make ice in a factory. You couldn't make ice in your home. That was a thing that had to be centralized. And when I think about what's exciting to me. It's giving that ability to fabricate things, to replicate what previously required relationships with the factory, factory equipment, specialized skills, uh, degrees and the like, accreditation, all these, all these gates, and making that ubiquitous the same way that everybody can have their own ice maker. Uh, we want everybody to have their own ability to create things uh, that before required giant industrial equipment. And I, and I would say, too, there's a, a great leveraging effect, is that you use Kickstarter to raise the funds for Robot Turtles. The original goal was pretty modest. You just wanted to make a reasonable run of it. it turned out to be wildly successful, and now you've passed the game on to another manufacturer, as I understand. Uh, so it's still in production, but it was that leveraging effect of you said, gosh, I have this idea. It blew up, and then you had the funds. You know, you may have had the funds without, but the funds from that project let you buy the thing that went, made you say, hey, maybe there's another thing past this. I have this 2D cutter. It's not the bomb. It is sort of. Um, so I like that as well, that you kind of laddered yourself up through a process a lot of people go through. And it can be even when you raise $1,000. I mean, or over 600000 is great, although I know a lot of that went to game manufacturer. It's not yeah. like it was extra. Most of it went into cardboard, but <laughs> some of it went into the laser cutter. But it's great because, I mean, someone could do a project in which they raise you know $5,000 for something they want to make. And I know people have done this a lot. They have a goal. And with that, they buy a thing like a Glowforge. They buy a 3D a printer that's affordable and useful, they can then make things and then ladder up from that, from the, the output of that. I think that works actually on the small scale too. Um, like when I used to run my leather business back in California, I would be working um, and selling just a few objects a week when I very first started out. And all of the money that I got from those sales went to further my skills or improve the materials I was able to acquire or increase the, uh, the tools that I was collecting so I could uh, essentially do do the job that I'm doing right now at a higher quality, at a faster rate. Um, and so I think you don't necessarily need to uh, run a project that earns you thousands of dollars to still benefit in the same way that Dan benefited from in running the Robot Turtles uh, campaign. And the service bureaus too, which I think, I don't know if they get stressed as much to people who are starting out. And I don't know how you all feel about that or what you, your interactions being, because I know you work with, I mean, the, the, one of the, the big thing we're gonna talk about today is how makers talk to you about their projects and you talk to them at maker fairs and, and via email and so forth all the time. I feel like service bureaus don't get mentioned enough to people starting out. Those of us who are a little further along, we know, well, we've reached 
reach the point and we send it off to an outfit that can make a thousand of these in five hours for us while we're sitting there minding the machine, churning them out little by little, where do you think service bureaus play in for scale for people, for 3D printing or 2D cutting or, or other things? Yeah, I mean, a shout out to my friends at Pinoco. They were the ones who made the laser cutting first, sort of first appeared on my radar and I went and sent away for parts. Uh, and having somebody who can go process that for you, who can go run batches, is totally invaluable. So uh, they're one of a number of Shapeways does 3D printing, um, and uh, finding those resources is really powerful. And what we're seeing more and more is people are getting these tools and are becoming those resources for their communities, whether it's opening a makerspace or whether it's sharing the equipment that they have with their local community. It's a really powerful way to, to take that first step because uh, it, it's still a significant investment to own something like a Glowforge or a 3D printer or a letterpress machine or anything else, and getting a taste of that and, in fact, getting some output from it uh, on an as-you-go basis is a really great enabler in the same way that running a crowdfunding campaign to get your first uh, your first product to market can be a really great enabler, too. That's kind of hilarious when you say letterpress. I'm like, you can buy the flatbed letterpress everyone thinks about now, but it can cost you $15,000. It's more expensive than digital equipment. That it's, I mean, that's the irony, right, is there's been a resurgence of interest in that. And so it's like, well, I could buy one of these for three grand or five grand, or I could buy a letterpress for $15,000. There's some irony there. Um, well, let's, let's maybe get into the facilitation part. And, and Shell, I know um, Shell is the fastest illustrator, Adobe Illustrator person I've ever seen in my life. It's like, Very uh, kind. well, it's, uh, it's inspiring. My illustrator skills have come better after watching you because I know it's possible. So I'm like, oh, maybe I could do this a little, a little faster. Um, so uh, I know that you often go to, all of you go to maker fairs. Are there certain kinds of, of people that you're meeting um, at these live events who come out? What are they looking for when they come to see you? What kind of help or insight? I, I think it's a very interesting world because every single person is completely different. Um, I've, uh, you'll have, uh, we've had a lot of like sort of uh, stories we tell around the office. Like there's these three women who are in their 70s who uh, hand trace uh, dollhouse furniture on their Glowforge. And they are lovely and sweet. And then there's a very sweet man who um, is, uh, he's at all of our, we have the photo of him staring at your calipers that he uh -huh. had made. Um, and, and so we, we have people, um, I'm, so you can speak to him a little bit, but um, we have people who are, come from a very technical background. We have people who come from a completely untechnical background. We have people who have just literally wanted an excuse to make something. Um, and I feel like we butt up against that. They're like, I just need help. I just need that one impetus. So, I mean, that's um, when Dan first showed me the idea for Glowforge, that was my immediate reaction is every hobbyist has suddenly gotten a new tool in their arsenal because there's so much that, um, I mean, I, I don't have enough experience in, in the woodworking side, but I know there's this bar to get over to make things where um, there's the boring part mm -hmm. that is just repetitive and you have to learn it to get over the hump. But then once you do that, then you make the exciting stuff and you learn how to do finished details. It, uh, do you hear those stories from folks who show up? And Absolutely. And then you, we've sort of touched on the service provider thing as well, where, where Dad's right, that is a really good enabler, but it's also, it's a bit of a gateway, right? Where you, <laughs> to horrible terms, but it is a bit of a, a thing where the first time I got back my first laser cutter thing, I was just like, oh, I need to do more of this. And um, like a lot of creators, that one little thing gave me about a hundred ideas that I just needed the tools to even be able to access. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, and it's interesting because Pinoco was my first gateway into laser cutting too. Uh, and with my leather business, I was using the, uh, the services they provide to create acrylic templates that I would cut around with my knives. I had never thought about actually cutting the leather itself with the laser. And it wasn't until I joined Glowforge that I started to experiment with that. 
but I also think since we were talking about the customers that we see at Maker Faire or the, the participants of Maker Faire, um, I think we now see um, a, a branch, if you like, of people who have seen the machine but don't yet have a hobby but now want a hobby so they have an excuse to own the machine. They have no idea what they want to do with it yet. And so actually the help that they want from us is inspiration about what they could do. And yet on the flip side, there are people who have a specific goal in mind and want to know the tools and the techniques to achieve that specific goal. So there's a real divergence there. Well, that's a good range. Do you see people from a particular um, particular areas? And you mentioned doll furniture, but is there like a, oh my gosh, every Maker Faire, a hundred people come up to us who make X? I mean, I would say no. That's the most. That's that's kind of the most amazing part. It's it's these. Um, it is. It's always fascinating because you never really know what you're going to get, and you'll have someone come up and like, I'm going to make cat ears for the next three years, and they're going to be the most amazing cat ears made out of leather with glitter, and, and you're just like, that's not what I would use that for, but that's amazing. Um, you'll have people who, um, Nick is absolutely right, where it's, it's either a very specific problem that they're trying to solve, or they're just like, I'm a maker that just needs to be unlocked. Yeah. You know, and they just don't know. I think everyone has a capacity for creativity. Um, I think there's a lot of fear around making things, um, and people have a hard time struggling to kind of get over that hump of just like diving in and messing up a thousand times before they get the right one, you know. Um, I feel like these people are just looking for an inspiration and a starting point and they just need that thing that makes them want to do it enough that they get over the fear, you know, and we just have to like provide them with, oh, here are the thousand things I would make with it and kind of be excited about it like that. Do you feel that you help people get over the hump of, um, uh, I mean, this is like a therapy thing, a therapy for makers thing, which is uh, a lot of people are, are gatekeepered, right? They go to a meetup, they, they maybe go to a maker space that has got a lot of very advanced people in it, or they try to take a woodworking class, or they, you know, they're in school, they're in high school, and they take a class and, and um, are discouraged. It feels like there is a lot of gatekeeping in the, the handmade world, and do you serve as a, I mean, is that a function you serve? Do people come up to you and they're like, oh, I was told I couldn't do this, you know, that kind of thing? Uh, I mean, like you say, therapy, but for people trying to unlock what they're doing. No, I mean, I think I think that's absolutely something that happens. I think people get very scared and they just kind of want, and I think that especially with a, an expensive machine, um, people are doubly terrified. I had a really good analogy said to me at, a, at an event recently where this uh, woman said when she was growing up, if she broke the button off of the television, it was unfixable, and she had ruined it for everyone else in oh the family. Gosh, wow. And she was, and it was a hard transition for her to go from that idea of something analog to something digital that she couldn't actually break. But she still has that worry: if I push this button at the wrong time, am I going to break the Glowforge, and no one else is going to be able to use it in my house? Am I going to break the, you know, the Cricut or the Cricut, all of the other tools that I have? And I think that fear, um, just by literally having someone stand there and go, "It's okay to push that button." Or let me show you the tutorial that helps you show know exactly how you need to push that button. I think those things are invaluable. We find ourselves in that position constantly. I mean, especially with the calls this week. Right, yeah. And I think in addition to that as well, being able to provide an example where you push the button and it went wrong. And you can yeah. show what happened yeah. and how it wasn't a significant thing at mm -hmm. all. And you can just reset, yep. step back, learn from whatever yep. happened and, and just go for it again. Yep. I think that's also really key. We find ourselves, we do something here called Laser Thursday, um, where people, the, the, our employees, so the engineers who are maybe not naturally, they are all very creative, they just don't think they are. They, they sort of come in with these preconceived notions of things that they don't know how to do, and they'll come up to me and Nick and be like, walk up, how do I glue this? And Nick and I are kind of like, what does the label say? Because we don't know either. And we just will read the label and we're there to help them and kind of walk them through it. But they just need that, just a little bit of love to be able to kind of be like, you know what, the only thing Nick and I do is read the label. <laughs> it's true. I, I wonder if in some ways we're teaching them how to fail gracefully as yes. opposed to how to be successful. 
that could be an interesting way to look at it, mm -hmm. uh, showing them that there is no, there is no wrong. Right. You can try something, and it actually might work in your favor. It could yeah. be a surprising result, which you are very happy with at the end of the day. Yeah, we we talk about happy accidents all the time, mm -hmm. and I'm just like, oh, you know what? I didn't know that. I, like Nick said, it didn't occur to him to cut leather for the first time. I guarantee you, the first time he cut it, it wasn't the one he wanted. Right. Right. <laughs> and yeah. but but he's comfortable enough with that. Um, and, and probably did it, you know, where not, there wasn't an audience, <laughs> just kind of like, let's make sure this is the thing I want to do. But because they feel the pressure to do something in that moment, I feel like we can kind of push them over be like, oh, let's just do it. Let's just mm -hmm. try it. You've got 20 minutes. We can always repress the button. Like we can always reprint. Um, well, and the, that concept is really great. There's an interesting stepping stone effect there too, I think, which is that this is why I'm particularly interested in the, like the digital analog hybrid tools, which, which can be really low tech. Like uh, vinyl cutters are really cool, and people use them to great effect. And those have been kicking around for decades now. And you know, plot, like pen plotters and things like that in the old days. But like up to things that can produce uh, uh, aerospace quality machine 3D printed parts. But the the thing I feel like is there's a um, Something that provides a stepping stone there is, uh, I used to do some woodworking, I built some you know, bookcases, I did stagecraft work in high school, and I can run all the tools, I should be check checked out again before I touch them, it's been too long, <laughs> but I can run all the tools and I'm not scared of them, but holy cow, that is a big bar. You could cut your finger off, you could damage a tool that costs many thousands of dollars, you could hurt somebody else. With the ability to like close a hood, I almost think there's something about something being underneath glass where it's, um, there's, it's 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 precious, but you're a little backed up. And in three, I mean, 3D printing, I think, was the first wave that people saw because it became affordable for you know really coarse objects, but ones that you couldn't ever make before. And now that's become very sophisticated, and we're going down the same path. Uh, how do you think that affects people in terms of their, I guess, their their fear is that they're not putting their hands on a, a thing, you know, and planing it down or something? I think that's part of it. I think there's also maybe some subtle psychology in the fact that oh, the machine messed up. Oops. Oh, yeah. Wasn't me. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. You, with the Glowforge and all of these digital tools, you do all of your setup in advance at no risk. Right. If you try something digitally and it's wrong, you undo or you add a line or yep. whatever it is. And once you're ready, you hit print and that's it. Uh, but with traditional woodworking, one incorrect stroke of that plane on the very last step of a project, and you may have ruined the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And that could be hours of time that you then have to go back and reinvest. The most terrifying thing I've seen lately in the artistic realm is I follow, um, uh, oh, what's his name? He goes by Nick Benson. There's a family, the Bensons are this ridiculously creative family from Rhode Island, and uh, one was a MacArthur, at least one was a MacArthur Grant fellow and became the dean of the School of Art and was the best printer in the world. Another is a stone carver, I forget the third, and the next generation is doing stuff. So this is one of the kids who's about my age, I think middle age. and. Um, he posts his work, which is exquisite and beautiful, and you've seen it all over the country. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm watching him do a stroke. I'm like, this is this giant piece of stone, and he's using a hand tool, and if something goes wrong, you know, and there's way, little ways to fix it, whatever, but some stuff you can't fix, that is terrifying. And that's at the one extreme, right? Um, but the other is that when you describe that process of like sort of preparing and the machine does it, I realize this is exactly how the rovers are dr driven on Mars. I don't know if this has ever occurred to you, but it's the same thing. The, uh, I've met one of the rover drivers, I interviewed him uh, a few years ago, and I've read about this since, is they write a program, right? They're drivers, they write a program, and of course there's time delay and whatever, but even if it were real time, they wouldn't be driving. If we had an Ansible, suddenly we could do it and without any flight delay. Um, they have to plot this all out, and they run simulations, and I'm thinking, wow, I don't think until you describe this process the way I'm like, that's what you're doing, you're driving a rover inside your glow forge. That's really interesting. Yeah, I like that yeah. analogy a lot. Um. 
So yeah, no, I think that the the, the idea that you have this 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 thing that you program um, and does a lot of this work for you makes it a, a very easy machine to sort of um, put the blame on sometimes when it go, when 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 you've messed up and you're like, what well, wasn't actually me technically that messed up? Um, but also the other side of that is people have immense affection for their tools. Um, and every artist has had the thought, and every creative and maker has had the thought, if I just had that one tool, I would make all of the things. Um, and yeah, and so it's kind of amazing how um, attached people get to their tools creatively. And, and um, just, you know, I, we all name our Forges. It's ridiculous. It's wonderful. So, yeah. Was, was that actually deliberate, Dan? Know, knowing that people anthropomorphize their tools? Was that one of the reasons why we said that people should name it? Uh, it was, yes, but it wasn't my innovation. Our, uh, our chief uh, software architect, Scott Haug, came up with the idea of naming units and also the tradition of terrible, terrible. <laughs> <laughs> you are sitting next to Hannibal Vector. <laughs> Mine is called the Graw Forge, just so you know. It's a deep cut. Visio, you know, which got sold to Microsoft for billions of dollars years ago, they apparently paid a very high price naming company, which said, oh, you should call it Graw. And they said, no, thank you. So that, to me, is always... There's also Graw. Somebody Graw, had used the name. Yeah. The, the founders <laughs> later founded Graw Ventures, so they remembered, too. Um, yeah, there's, well, there's that sense of, like, this is the... the, the an artist has tools laid out in front of them, and sometimes it's digital, and sometimes it's analog. And I think it's, um, I guess I wonder how people re-envision um, what they do artistically when that toolkit changes. So suddenly there is this digital component in it, or a service bureau component that's digital. It doesn't have to be in their house, but it's um, this thing that they've been doing for a long time. So uh, I know you just talked, we were talking before the podcast, you just talked to like 80 customers <laughs> recently. So you have this, and I know you've talked to thousands of people over the last few years as uh, Glowforge ramped up and then uh, went on uh, general sale. Uh, are there stories that you come away with about, uh, is there anything in particular, like for um, established people, where they can tell you about, you know, this has changed my life because, or I've reworked what I've done? Uh, yeah, I think there's some people, um, to, to take one example, a lady who had a business making cards. Um, in the past, had been hand illustrating a lot of different things, and she would make a number of them at a time, and she'd put them out in her community for sale, and some of them would sell well, and some of them would sell pretty poorly. Um, but she would make an investment ahead of time to create a large volume so they were ready for sale, and some of those would inevitably go to waste, so to speak. Uh, but with a tool like the Glowforge, you could take a similar idea, make a variety of different things in much smaller quantities, test the market with those, retire those few that didn't sell well, and then invest the rest of your time and energy in producing more of what was successful. Um, so that really enabled her to narrow down on what was uh, important to her customer and satisfy them greatly. Oh, I was just uh, thinking of one of our customers who's a photographer and who was thinking about making that his full-time uh, full job. But there's, you know, it's difficult to make a living selling photographs. And one of the things that was transformative for him was uh, instead of selling photographs, selling puzzles. It was interesting because it was a whole different market. It was a whole different approach. When you're buying a photograph, you're buying art. But when you're buying a puzzle, you're buying something fun. And so then it became in part photography, in part um, this sort of uh, heritage, uh, toy, craftsmanship uh, experience for him. And that was actually what got him across the jump to where that could become his full-time job. Uh, and, uh, and I believe expanded onto other photo-based personalized things that he was creating from that. But jumping mediums just transforms a piece of artwork. There's, um, there's a, a, a wallet that um, we've used in some videos that has a, an old map of Seattle on it. 
And uh, I saw that map for the first time uh, when I was like 23 and was in the Library of Congress. Uh, and somebody said, oh, here, you should go, like, you're from Seattle, look at this map of Seattle. It's, you know, 125 years old or however it was. It's hand-drawn. You can see ships with oars in them drawn in the harbor. Uh, but it was actually a map, and it was used for that at the time. And I found it online, uh, a scan of it, and didn't do anything with it until years and years and years later when I had the idea to go take a plain vanilla wallet design and engrave the map on it. And now this piece of artwork has been completely transformed from uh, from a, you know, a relic in a museum uh, to something that's actually just a part of your everyday life. And it's a, a means of self-expression, and it's something useful. And that notion of using your tools to take a core piece of creativity and then express it in different materials, in different ways, to different audiences, I think is one of the most powerful things a creator can do. Because being able to take that idea and then envision it in all these different places in the world and all these different ways that help people, uh, that's what can transform something from sort of a one-off project into, uh, into a lifestyle, into a business, into, uh, into a full-time job. The quantity thing, I think, is a great aspect of that, too, like crossing media. But also, we live at a time, I think, that it is, um, I've probably said this, listeners will go, what are you, you've talked about this before. But it's it's the, the quantity issue keeps coming back to me because I feel like it used to be, you know, if you want to make that wallet in the past, you would probably have to create a, a template or either it would be, you know, a $500 wallet because someone would be hand, you know, tooling it. Or it would be a $50 wallet and you'd have to make 10,000 of them and contract and you'd have to learn about Chinese manufacture or Midwest manufacture and whatever. But now you can make one. Um, and I see this across a lot of things. The, the folks at um, Studio Neat who do all kinds of interesting prototyping before they make pens and uh, uh watch stands and other kinds of stuff, they got a tiny lathe, you know, computer-controlled lathe, and suddenly they can do a prototype thing that would have cost them vastly more, and they can iterate through design. So, I mean, this is a lot to say, like, there's both that aspect of making a, a small quantities, which can be transformative because suddenly it's affordable to do it, but also prototyping in very small quantities directly with you. How do you see that playing out in both the quantity issue, but also the, like, the, the small quantity prototyping or iterative prototyping? One of our customers was uh, telling me about her leather mask business. She created these incredible, beautiful leather masks. And, uh, and she had mostly shut down that business. And there were two reasons. One was that she was, um, her best-selling masks, she was a little bored of. They took an immense amount of time to make. They were deeply intricate. And doing that over and over again, the thing that sort of worked best for the business, uh, wasn't the thing that brought her passion. Second one was sometimes skills increase over time. In her case, her abilities were becoming limited. She had arthritis, and it was getting harder and harder to do the precision cutting. And so in her case, bringing a new tool into the equation meant both that she could spend less time doing the things that weren't exciting to her. She could print out 10 masks at a go and, uh, and skip that painful step and so speed up. It also meant that a process that she wasn't really comfortable doing anymore was now open to her again. So to me, that was really interesting because this wasn't somebody who sort of multiplied their skills. This was somebody who multiplied their output and actually regained some lost skills from a tool that, uh, that, that entered their lives. Uh, and so to me, that's really exciting, both scaling out in terms of more of what you can do and getting some precision and some repeatability that not everybody may, may have. And also, I think creatives are very, um, we, we all want to see the next thing. We're very, we get bored easily. You, you, you kind of like, okay, I've done this thing a hundred times. I don't want to do it anymore. And, and, and I think the best tools that you can have out there are the tools that 
basically allow you to be more creative while <laughs> things are being made. Um, and so you're still being productive, but you're being productive in a very different way that a lot of creatives just just thrive on because they don't have to worry about those those small, repeatable tasks. And I think everybody has a different part of the process they enjoy. Uh, I hate finishing. I used to do woodworking, and I'd be like, here's this beautiful piece of raw lumber, and now I have to spend a month finishing it. Oh my gosh, I can't believe it. Uh, that's terrible. Um, uh, Nick is a master finisher. My goal is to avoid finishing. <laughs> Nick, I don't know if you look for it and love it or not, but like the work that comes out of your hands is amazing. So I look at this and I go, "Hey, I, I want pre-finished materials. I want to, I want to, you know, hit print, be done, and then say, look, ta-da, instant gratification." Whereas I think real creators like Nick and Shell will go use that as the first step in a process and say, okay, I got the robot to do the automation for me, right? I got the desktop factory piece done. Now's the piece when I can infuse it with love and with creativity um, in those final steps. And, you know, great tools let you adapt to the parts of the process that you enjoy and offload the pieces that you don't. Oh, I love that because there's that dial of like, right, is how much finish art do you want to do yourself? And But, and again, in the past, you didn't have that option so much. You have to hire somebody to do it. Um, there's t a lot of steps that couldn't be avoided. And it's like, I, you know, I don't want to get into the shortcutty thing. Like I learned how to, my, my first graphic design class, we were working with a ruling pen and ink. And man, that is hard work. Uh, and I, I love every second I spent with it. I think it still informs everything I do today. But I don't really want to use a ruling pen today. Like that's not really my thing. That's not what I'm best at either. Um, I think I have a different conceptual framework. But there's some people out there still, the ruling pen is their primary uh, instrument that they use to, you know, to express whatever they're doing because it's got the control they want and they have the hand skill for it. I can safely say that the hundreds of hours I spent hand rubbing a French polished finish on walnut are directly responsible for the reason we sell pre-finished woods <laughs> for your glow for it. Um, so what's the cleverest template you've seen or the cleverest pattern? I mean, Nick, you were talking before about how you kind of went over that hump of like, wait, I don't have to make a thing I can cut. I can actually cut it directly. But have you seen something that made you go, wow, this is a great way to um, – to put the creativity in one place and then be able to produce multiples from it. Literally every jig that Nick makes. <laughs> very annoying. No, it's wonderful. Um, so we think very differently. Um, and I have learned a lot about making jigs and making rigs and, and things that I would never have um, the exposure or the sort of the background, the, the, the more, a more sort of engineering background. So there's um, there's Would you tell people listening what a jig is? Because I am yes. actually I am new to knowing that term. Yeah, 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 because yeah, I sure. wasn't doing um, I, I'm assuming it's it's from Nick because I, that's how I use it. But it's essentially um, it's something to hold something else in place, um, and we use it as um, a lot of times we'll use it as a starting point so that we can do multiple things. Like so, you can just take out the thing in the center and replace it with the other one that you want to create. The name jig comes from the little dance that Nick does every time he makes one. <laughs> that's it. It's a jig. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's also interesting to note that with the technology that we've produced uh, here at Glowforge, those jigs are pretty much redundant in most yes. cases now. Yes. Uh, I actually take great joy in making jigs. I think it's a really fun thing to do, but I actually don't need to do it very often right. anymore. Yes. Oh, that's interesting. So you need a jig. Whenever you want to align something perfectly, you need a jig. And if you have something that already aligns things, you don't need it. But it's probably, uh, I've talked about this book before, but it's uh, Moxon's Complete Mechanic Exercise, I think is the title, which is instructions from the 1600s on how to build a print shop starting with like here's how you cut down the trees and melt the you know and, and mine the ore practically he also did a series of books on joining and cabinetry and all the wood skills and it was that kind of thing it's like so you you know you can go back 400 years and probably 
2,000 years and say jigs are, are part, and I, like I say, it's new to me because I wasn't doing woodworking, but it's been this thing. We have to make a pattern to make other things so that they fit together. There's this really fascinating thing that I've discovered here at Glowforge where I came from a really digital world before, and uh, things like jigs and um, finishing with um, with a special kind of oil for, for woodworking and, and, and all of these tools that are sort of considered more old world tools, we're using with incredible technology, and I wouldn't have experienced any of those old world tools on my own because my, my, um, my gaps in knowledge and my experience was so short before that that I, I would have, it would have taken me years to get to that point. Um, so having the ability to go in there and take some of the stuff that I'm like, I'm not very good at that, I don't have, meant that I could learn how to finish leather correctly for the first time ever and how to stitch properly and how to do these things that I would never have been, I just frankly wouldn't have had the time to do properly the right time before. I love that connection. It's like all the our, our digital skills are actually relevant, but then we get to expand them in this. I mean, this is I, I keep coming back to is is I'm making more than I ever did before, and it's because digital and analog have started to blur, right. and it's fantastic. And uh, you know, teaching that this workshop uh, it was almost a year and a half ago, letterpress and and uh, laser cutting was phenomenal because I had people who'd been letterpress you know printing for forty years and people who had barely touched it, and everyone was flipping out because of realizing something in your head, making it, and then using old techniques that you could modify simply on the spot and live, so you have that immediacy as well. Um, it's exciting. Mm -hmm. Very much so. Uh, are there tools, digital or analog, that you wish you had and that you hope are developed? I know there's things you can't talk about because you're developing them in-house even, but are there things that are uh, that are, have arisen from all the, the talk you've had with people, the work you've done yourself, where you say, gosh, I wish there were a thing that did X. And it, but it could be digital. It could be, gosh, if we only had a preprocessor that could blank. I think a great example of that actually uh, is a box generator. I think when it comes to lasers, <laughs> many people want to create a thing that holds another thing. Yeah. Uh, and doing that is actually a relatively developed skill. It's not an easy thing to make a box that goes together nicely, that's the right size, that is structurally sound. Uh, and there are a number of programs online now where you can put in your different parameters and it will generate for you an SVG file that you can print and assemble. Uh, but they're generally pretty rudimentary. Uh, they don't necessarily go together very well. They're not aesthetically pleasing in many ways and they're limited to different, you know, particular form factors. So I think somebody taking the time, maybe might be Glowforge one day, uh, and investing some software hours in making a really great box generator would unlock a lot of capabilities for a lot of people. That is a fantastic answer. And, and I hear that from people too, and I'm not even deeply involved in this. Is that a common question? Do you get people saying, how do I, I mean, is how do I make a box? I think that everyone at this company on a laser Thursday has tried to make a box with varying degrees of success. It took me uh, about two years to make my first box, even though I, because it's, it's not my, it's not my, my natural skill set. Um, and Nick helped me every step of the way of that one, I'm afraid. So you can walk up, why is this broken? Um, but I think it's, um, it's, it's a skill set that is innately human. I want to organize my things. I want to put my thing in my thing. But I have one thing that I love more than anything that I want to have a special box for it. And it's such a human thing to do. Um, and... and yeah, sometimes they look beautiful, sometimes they don't. <laughs> I think, no, I think you define human beings are people who want to put things in things. They made, my mother-in-law was an early childhood development expert and the best, she never gave advice without asking, she's mm -hmm. still with us, but she never gave advice without asking when my children were little. She's a wonderful person. The single best piece of advice was, 
toddlers want to put things in other things. And that helped us on every trip we took. We're like, we're going to bring things that they can put in things. But you're right, we never outgrow it. I even think about in Japanese, the fact that numbers get counted differently, whether you're putting something on top of something or it's an ordinal number. Like to me, that is a, like a language representation of things inside of things. Um, but this is um, uh, your former coworker Anna Robinson, who's working with me. She is my she is the the fine arts crafts person who is making uh, the museum case for my tiny type museums. You're in uh, excellent hands there. I'm very excited. But you know she's in cabinetry and joinery school. And I got to say, one of the reasons we're making the museums is I saw her Instagram pictures of, oh my God, this is so hard and it's so fascinating how you join things and. I'll tell you my answer for the what tool I want is I want a digital miter. And I know you guys are going to stay quiet when I say that. But it's like <laughs> a thing that cuts at a slight me, me angle. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Okay. But it's like, isn't that funny, though? It's like a thing that builds stuff up. You know, 3D is great. A thing that cuts away and can do variable depth cutting is awesome. And I'm like, oh, my God. That is the missing. And I know you can get them. I know there are devices that will do it and CNC routers and all that. But, like, I feel like something that's as simple as a Glowforge and yet mitered would dramatically transform box production. <laughs> I was actually just looking around. I have a mitered box here that was made on a Glowforge where oh, the, oh. the edges are engraved. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it actually does a 3D engraving, mm -hmm. sculpts the curve on there. I'm not seeing it, but. No, that's a fascinating uh, thing. So you're burning away selectively more and more and more. So you get a mitered edge. Exactly. It's still something we're experimenting with to get the precision right because it's a tricky, uh, a tricky art. Um, but yeah, uh, and when you mentioned Anna, it brings to mind her incredible spoons, spoons, which to me are just emblematic of somebody with a, uh, an insightful, creative eye who can go and take a traditional art form and really transform it. There's nothing digital as far as I know about her process for those, um, but she manages to bring so much expression into sup such a simple form of art, a beautiful piece of wood and a common household object. Um, seeing people take that level of, of care and thoughtfulness to all the objects around them is uh, is part of what just excites me about the world of, uh, of, of personal creation. This is like a Marie Kondo world, and I mean that in a nice way, is that like every object is imbued with value and properties, and that's the thing, is you're bringing all this attention to an object, one that we actually do cherish and love and spark story and we keep. Uh, but um, talking about Anna reminds me of a, a related thing, too, which is that her spoon career grew on Instagram. I'm reading about so many people. Uh, I'm talking to these letterpress um, acquisition people who buy all kinds of letterpress stuff, and they have moved from uh, the web to Instagram. And I'm wondering, how much is Instagram a part of your creators' lives now and for, for both sharing but also selling? I mean, I, I don't think I would... I, I would have a fraction of the ideas without Instagram and YouTube and these resources and seeing artists out there being able to show their showcase their art in a digital format that is accessible and easy and is also honestly entertainment is is kind of a beautiful thing um, because you're just exploring these ideas with them and I feel like you get I become very I become emotionally attached to a desk but I become very emotionally attached to their stories and how they're growing as artists and um, watching um, we have a we have a coworker now who's who's doing weaving and watching her weave when she's never done it before she's an engineer it's not really her in her skill set I have I am I have never been prouder like I and I have no reason to be proud I have no nothing to do with it but I'm like but I knew her when, you know, and you, when you watch these people and their skill sets grow, but seeing it digitally, you're taken along on that journey and it's very emotional and, and engaging. 
my my happy moment each morning is looking at the Glowforge hashtag on Instagram. Yes. And I just I'm looking at this giant stacked cardboard sign. I'm looking at somebody who made a plywood infinity calendar. I'm looking at somebody who made this uh, octahedron that's glowing purple in the middle. At somebody who created uh, a business doing laser cut earrings, and not just the earrings, but the the design, the frame that she shows them in is part of that experience. Uh, on and on and on. It is, I mean, it's my happy time to go see the creativity that people are bringing into the world. It's its incredible. Instagram is the only happy social network because you can, it's like it's, it's babies, dogs, cats, and people, you know, in my case, letterpress printers and people making object, wooden objects. And it's it's great. But, you know, I think it was, I, I have to track down this essay at some point. It's in one of Kurt Vonnegut's essays. He talked about how we became afraid of amateurism in the United States. Like, you know, mass media, one of the effects he argued was Uncle Jim doesn't get up and play the accordion anymore. And my mother-in-law's incredible memory, several people in her family played the accordion. But, no, you know, she never did. We don't at this age. And I feel like we're in the middle of this renaissance of people jumping up and playing the accordion but part of it is it's like time money resources uh, you know millennials are killing free time it's like no millennials don't have any free time so digital tools that bring an analog component in give you a shortcut to let you actually express yourself better that's my theory at least it's been a funny arc over the centuries because 100 years ago 200 years ago if you want something you made it yourself or you found somebody in your neighborhood to make it for you and that's the way it's been for all of human history and it's only in the past decades that we've uh, decided that the best way to get things made is in a factory halfway around the world, mass production, everybody gets the same thing, um, which is fine so far as it goes. Same thing happened with food. But we didn't give up our kitchens, yet somehow we all gave up the tools that we use to make things. And that's really weird. It's like we're all eating you know, TV dinners all the time. And if you say you cook, people look at you strangely. That's what making and crafting and creating is. It is it's the exception when it should be at least the expectation that, that people can create things for themselves. And, and to your point about uh, you know, amateur being underrated, the thing I love about a tool is when that tool can make you an amateur. I don't expect to be an expert. It always takes years, uh, if not a lifetime, to become an expert. But tools that help you become an amateur are so wonderful. If you think about like the Cricut vinyl cutter, that makes you an amateur paper cutter. The, my goal for the Glowforge was that it could make you an amateur woodworker and leather crafter and paper cut and all these things. Because it gets you to that point where you have some small degree of self-sufficiency of, of creativity. And ironically, you can then all the better appreciate the experts and the work that they do. And it puts you on that trail, but you can go as far down that trail as you want. I think that's a that's an absolutely beautiful sentiment. And I've never thought about it that way because it's often professional is usually contrasted with somebody who can't do something, right? Like incompetent versus professional. And amateur is a dirty word, but becoming an amateur, what a lovely, a lovely idea. Um, I will ask you, as we finish up here, I have, I have two interlock questions which any of you may ask or not answer or, answer or not answer, which is what's the best advice you can give to beginning makers and advanced makers. I know it may even be the same advice, but are there are there things that come up again and again that you tell people to help them at, at these different points in their work? I would say uh, just do it. I know that's a Nike phrase, so maybe just don't be afraid would be another way of, of putting it. Uh, but if you have an idea, try it. Um, even if it's a half-formed idea, just go for it, see what happens. Um, likely, it will give you some sense of success and you will decide to pursue that thing further. And that might be as a master craftsman developing a new technique that you've not tried before, maybe integrating a digital tool where you were only using hand tools previously, or as a beginner, maybe that's approaching something completely new that you are absolutely afraid of. But if you just go ahead and try it just for a second, you'll probably find some success and you'll feel, uh, you'll feel very happy as a result of that. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I would, I would absolutely second that. I think um, my, the biggest advice I have for, for any creatives is to surround yourself with people that are good to collaborate with, um, that are encouraging, but will give you honest feedback. Um, I, I, I think that encouragement is wonderful, but people can tell when you're not being, being genuine. Um, but also being in an environment of collaboration and being around people, people learn very differently from you. And finding an encouraging center of people, um, whether it be a makerspace or a community or a meetup or anything like that, I, that's always been where I have learned and grown the best personally. So. Uh, I would say something that took me decades to learn is that given the choice between making it live up to your dreams and making it complete, make it complete. And the more you complete, the more your completion will live up to your dreams. But finishing something, taking a measure of pride in it, moving on, accepting that you're an amateur and it's not the thing that was in your head, but it's done, taking pride in what you've done and then doing something new is a faster way to improve and a much, much more personally gratifying way to explore your, your creative self. Um, because the more you do things and the more you execute, complete, learn and do again, the more quickly you grow rather than sitting there and continually refinishing that darn wooden table over and over again. <laughs> until you get the even across the whole city. It'll be done someday. Um, thank you so much, Dan, Shell, Nick. Thanks for sharing your insight and your, your work with other people and, and bringing makers up. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Thanks so much for having us. This is The New Disruptors. The theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, audio lives at SoundCloud, and the site runs on Squarespace. This episode was hosted by me, Glenn Fleischman, and edited by Stephen Schapansky. You can help support this podcast and fund the production of more episodes by visiting newdisrupt.org support and find out about monthly and yearly membership options that include a fancy enamel pin and being thanked on an episode. This episode copyright 2019 A Periodical LLC. It's licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution by linking back to newdisrupt.org. I only ask that you don't offer it for sale. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.